Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, let's see. I, I basically uh, thought that uh, I normally don't like doing slides or presentations, but I thought I would do just one slide to uh, give people a little bit of a uh, of a graphical visual on um, on how to um, how I think uh, the, the picture of the world looks going forward to 2050, and try to put it in a single slide. Uh, I think we have in our world two big trends. There's a trend towards globalization, and there's a trend towards technology. And so you, we have progress on globalization, progress on technology. Uh, the words globalization and technology are often used interchangeably and uh, often sort of blended together. And I believe that uh, little could be further from the truth and that uh, these are best thought of as uh, extremely different uh, kinds of things. Um, and I would define globalization as uh, basically moving along the um, horizontal axis. And, um, and you can uh, sort of think of it as uh, horizontal progress, extensive progress, um, and that basically globalization is about going from one to n. It is about copying things that work. Um, and technology is vertical progress. It is doing new things. It is going from zero to one. Um, you can uh, you could define globalization as doing more with more, and so uh, globalization is simply copying things that work and doing more of it. Uh, and then uh, technology, in some sense, is doing more with less. And uh, the question I I want to pose, and I'll, I'll sort of give some perspectives on how I think people pose the question. I'll give a perspective on how people think about it, and then I'll sort of throw in a, a few thoughts of my own. Um, the question I think that's worth posing as we think ahead towards the year 2050 is how much, um, how much should we weight the horizontal dimension and how much should we weight the vertical dimension? And that's, the, that's sort of the, the very open-ended question um, I'd like to throw out to you. And I think uh, if you think of it as a resource allocation question, um, they are different kinds of things to allocate resources to. As an investor, do I invest in globalization so do I invest in uh, you know, building, um, building highways in China or in um, uh, setting up McDonald's franchises in India or things like that? Or do I invest in technology in uh, trying to do fundamentally new things? As a philanthropist, do I, uh, do I allocate money towards uh, helping people in um, emerging market countries do better? Or do I allocate money towards uh, basic research um, and make, taking the best things in the world and making them better. Uh, and there are sort of all sorts of ways in which um, so you can frame it as a nonprofit, as a for-profit question. And of course, there's a, there's a political version of this too where uh, do we spend our resources on sort of getting the whole world up to the US level or do we spend our resources on improving the US and making it a better country? I think that's sort of a very basic uh, kind, uh, a political version. Now, you know, the, the glib answer, of course, is we're going to do all of these things. But, uh, but I, th I do think you can ask the question uh, very much what percent of your time resources should go into them. Is it, should it be 50% globalization and 50% technology, 95 and 5? You know, what are the, what are the different ratios? Now, um, now the, it, it strikes me that the answer people have in our world today is that they are massively long globalization and massively short technology, just as a, as a structural matter. Uh, I can, sort of the, the simplest anecdotal way I can describe this is 
whenever, um, whenever people ask me for money in a nonprofit context, um, you know, the easiest way I've found to decline requests for money is to explain this chart, to explain the difference between horizontal and vertical progress, between extensive and intensive growth, between copying things that work and doing new things, explain to people, you know, I've decided I'm just doing new things. Um, now tell me what your nonprofit does. And um, invariably, they're always on the horizontal side. And so it's a, it's a great way to uh, decline requests for, for money. Um, uh, and I think, but I, I think this sort of perspective is embedded in a lot of different uh, things. When, when we, when we uh, think about how we uh, used to talk about the world in the 1960s, uh, we talked about the world as being divided between the first world and the third world. The first world was a part of the world that was seeing accelerating technological progress. Um, and the view was it was just going to keep going. There was a bestseller written in 1967 by Zervon Schreiber called The American Challenge. And it basically said that if Europe didn't get its act together, it would fall further and further behind the US. The difference between Europe and the US would grow from a difference of degree into a difference of kind. Um, and that by the year 2000, according to Zervon Schreiber, the accelerating rate of technological progress in the US would leave the rest of the world in the dust. Um, people in the US would no longer have to compete with other people in the rest of the world. They would be so far ahead of everybody. Um, and uh, this would be reflected in the average work week in the US. People would work uh, seven hours a day, four days a week, and have 13 weeks a year paid vacation, all by the year 2000, as a result of exponential accelerating technological progress. Now, we're always tempted to dismiss it. Well, he was French and, um, uh, and, and sort of have some sort of facile um, way to dismiss this, this sort of uh, incredible optimism that existed around technology in the 50s and 60s where uh, things were going to continue to accelerate at a breathtaking pace. Um, the way we speak about the world today is not about a first world and a third world. We typically speak about the world today in terms of the developed and the developing worlds. And, uh, and the uh, developing world is the world that will copy the developed world and that will catch up. And, uh, and it basically, the sort of dichotomy in the way we speak about the world involves a, a convergence theory of globalization that the whole world will converge on something like uh, the level of the US. And so this dichotomy, unlike the earlier first world, third world dichotomy, is much more pro-globalization. It's a very bullish globalization dichotomy. But I want to also point out that the way we talk about it is implicitly an anti-technological dichotomy. Um, and it's, it's most hostile to technology when you talk about the developed world as being developed. Uh, because implicit in, you take that literally, you're saying that the developed world is the part of the world where nothing new is going to happen. It is done. Um, and, um, and it is a place where, where nothing new is going to happen. And I, think, um, and I think we have to be aware that this is the, you know, if you want to sort of geographically situate this, uh, probably the, the uh, country in the world that most um, um, embodies um, the convergence theory of globalization would be China. And it is the country on which people are relentlessly bullish. You know, it's, uh, it's grown at 8% a year for the last uh, 30 or so years. If it keeps doing that, it will be, be bigger than the US by 2023. It'll be bigger than the rest of the world put together by 2040 or so. But, uh, but uh, that's, that's sort of, that's the one people are incredibly bullish on. 
the part of the world that perhaps uh, symbolizes uh, technology um, more than anything else, it was sort of an independent country, would be the state of California. And this, again, is a place people are structurally incredibly uh, bearish on. There's always, you know, there's always something's happening in Silicon Valley, but it doesn't seem to actually be enough to move the dial. And if you said California is this place where all this technology is happening, um, people don't really believe that. And it's not like, say, the 1930s when you had a serious recession, Great Depression, and people moved to California. You know, grapes of wrath, they moved from Oklahoma to California. Today, people would be moving from California to Oklahoma, which uh, it's probably not because technology is being developed in, in, um, in Oklahoma. Um, and so, so there is sort of uh, a sense in which uh, I think we are, the, the perceptions are that we are extremely uh, uh, bullish on globalization and bearish on technology. Um, and my, my sort of, um, the, you know, the bias I, I would have is, is it really possible for there to be this sort of a unbalanced growth in the 21st century. Can we have globalization without technology? That's sort of a basic uh, one, one question I, would, I think is worth posing. And then, um, and then, um, and then you know, moreover, why has this shifted? So let's, let's start with the question, why did it shift in the way it did? How did things change so radically from 40 years ago to, uh, to today where people uh, no longer believe in technology but believe in uh, globalization as the great driver. And I think the, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the uh, sort of the pessimistic answer I have is that there's been much less technological progress in the last 40 years than is often advertised. Um, with the um, important exception of computers, um, there has been, you know, general stagnation, um, you know, everywhere else. Uh, we have seen uh, little progress on the energy front. Uh, in, in fact, uh, you know, Energy prices, commodity prices are higher than they were um, at the peak in the 70s. Um, the, uh, the great green revolution of the 50s and 60s and 70s um, has started to fade. There's no longer improvements in agricultural innovation. Um, and we're sort of living in an increasingly Malthusian world in which there's a struggle for resources because uh, um, technology has not kept pace with, uh, with global population growth. Um, biomedical uh, progress has, uh, you know, has, has markedly slowed in the last 20 years. There are only about a third as many drugs uh, currently in FDA trial as there were 15 years ago. Uh, the big pharma companies are starting to liquidate uh, their employees en masse. And even when you come to something as basic as transportation, we are no longer moving faster. And, uh, you know, I, 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 um, and, uh, you know, if, you know, the, the, it, it peaked with the Concorde in 76. That was decommissioned in 2003. And basically, uh, today, uh, transportation speeds are probably back to 1960 levels if you include very low-tech airport security systems and the way in which travel has become an increasingly nightmarish process. So I think, um, I think with, the, with the one exception of the computer revolution, um, uh, there's been tremendous deceleration. I, I have been involved with the computer revolution for the last 15 years. I think it has many reasons to, there are many reasons to believe that it, it will continue. Uh, there is an open question whether it is enough economically to move the dial. I don't think it's been enough the last 40 years. And you can look simply at, um, at median wages in the U.S., which have been stagnant since 1973. You can, look at, uh, you can look at mean wages, which have gone up a little bit. So there's been some increase in inequality. But the basic reality has been stagnation. And, um, and I think 
uh, the economic facts um, put um, really call into question the, uh, the sort of very optimistic technological story that often gets told in Silicon Valley. How can you have had 40 years of breathtaking technological progress um, when um, it's not translated into higher living standards in, the, in, this, uh, in, this, um, in our society at all? So I think, I think the reason for this shift has, uh, has involved this, uh, the fact that we've had uh, 40 years of, of general failure in technology. Um, and the question we have to ask as we go forward is, can this be extrapolated and can this be uh, continued? And, um, and I guess uh, just to sort of uh, say a few words on my, my thoughts on it, are that uh, it's, it's going to be quite hard to reverse the tech deceleration. Uh, it's something that's important to try. Um, uh, it's important to push the computer revolution further. It's important to try to uh, reinvigorate all sorts of other areas. Uh, we can, you know, I think there are a lot of interesting questions why this deceleration has happened, but it's an important uh, question for us to try. Uh, my, my, the one thing that I am, however, very convinced of is that the consensus view, long globalization, short technology, is simply wrong. That, um, that globalization without incredible technological progress um, is not going to work. And it is not going to work uh, for simple reasons that we have, you know, if you're on if you're on the sort of the, the more liberal side, it's we have environmental constraints. On the more conservative side, we have probably fundamental resource constraints. Um, there is, there is um, not enough, there are not enough resources either, um, or environmental resources to sustain seven billion people on this world at an American standard of living. And so if you have, if you have convergence um, in, um, in globalization without any technological improvement, um, you are basically just setting yourself up for relentless conflicts over uh, resources of one form or another. Um, and, uh, and that's why you know, I think the, uh, the clean tech uh, failure in Silicon Valley in the last decade um, um, is something we need to think about really hard. You know, I, I think there was a lot that went wrong with these uh, companies. But, uh, but there's something about the clean tech failure as being more important than the Web 2.0 success. Uh, Web 2.0 success did create value, but the, the clean tech failure um, and the failures to develop alternate energies is what really calls into question the sort of uh, globalization um, type of narrative. And when you, when you see a world that's globalizing but not progressing on the vertical side, on the technology side, um, you start to have a sort of very different perspective on what's happening in, um, in many parts of the world. So just to give you know, one, one perspective on the, on the Arab Spring, sort of all these questions, is this a good thing, is this a bad thing? And people often frame it in ideological terms around um, democracy is spreading to the Middle East or it's this fundamentalist Islamic backlash. So you can sort of have sort of a positive or negative ideological take on it. But I think the, uh, there's sort of a positive and a negative technological take. And the positive technological take is that it is uh, the information age that is sort of um, helping disseminate information and, um, and, um, and that it's sort of a success of the computer age that's coming to the Middle East and transforming these, these countries. The pessimistic technological uh, case for the Arab Spring um, is that it was basically driven by runaway food price increases in 2011. Food prices had gone up something like uh, 30 to 70 percent in the previous year. Um, and it, that the so-called uh, green revolution um, is best understood 
as a, a result of the failure of the true green revolution of the 50s and 60s, which increased agricultural outputs, and that, uh, and that, um, you know, um, uh, that we should not simply embellish it um, as this great uh, 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 transformational um, event, and we should not ignore the fact that it is, um, it is uh, sort of the direct result of desperate people who became more hungry than scared. Um, and that that is the kind of thing that you're going to be seeing more and more of um, in our world in the decades ahead. China um, is probably, China cannot develop without massive technological progress. You know, if, if China uh, had the same standard of living uh, like you have in the US, um, I, I don't even want to think what happens geopolitically, who gets the oil, who gets the resources, how does this, how does this possibly work? You know, the 2008 to 2012 period saw, um, saw us, um, so you know, oil prices were at $140 in um, the summer of 2008. Uh, what basically happened in the last four years is that, uh, is that um, a large part of the developed world got knocked out. Uh, you had massive economic collapse in the US and Western Europe. Um, China kept growing. Oil prices are now back to close to $140 four years later, and, um, and we're once again running into the same resource constraint we faced uh, four years ago. And the question is, who gets shot next in this sort of game of musical chairs? Is it a second Arab Spring? Is it Southern Europe that needs to get shot? Is it um, austerity in the US? Is it, uh, is it a bubble breaking in China? Do people in India have to starve? These are the kinds of questions you are going to have to answer if you believe in globalization and you're not focused on technology. And so, um, so I, while I am in many ways somewhat pessimistic about things, um, my pessimism does not stop me from uh, believing that it is incredibly urgent to push the vertical axis really hard because I believe that that is the only way uh, we can navigate towards a uh, more prosperous and successful uh, uh, 21st century. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Um, that was brilliant. We will start uh, taking questions, so please uh, write down your questions and pass them to the staff. Um, I'll say this, optimist, pessimist, or at least tough critic. Um, that was uh, two interesting points of view. The deceleration that you're talking about, it almost feels like you're saying the developed world, or at least this country, is just psychologically incapable because it's not signed up for larger goals. It's, you know, I, I'm, always, I'm always nervous to go straight into the question of why. Because people, okay. you, you, say, you say we've had the slowdown, and the question is why has it happened? Uh, I, I, certainly think, um, I, I certainly think that there is a way in which, um, uh, in, in, in a way in which our country does not believe in larger goals around uh, science and technology. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to set those goals. And, uh, and, um, and, uh, you know, uh, and so uh, it would be, you know, I think it would be very hard to motivate, um, you know, if you imagine sort of a political leader go, going on TV and saying, this is what we're going to do. Um, like a Kennedy did. Uh, I, think. I, I think it would be hard to get an Apollo program approved today. It would be hard to, uh, it would be hard to, uh, you know, um, Nixon declared war on cancer. In 1970, they said they were going to defeat it in six years by the bicentennial by 1976. Um, you know, um, 
I think that was a worthwhile effort. Probably a lot went wrong with the process. We need to figure out what went wrong and try to do better. But uh, you know, today, um, something like 40% of the people um, at age 85 suffer from dementia or incipient Alzheimer's. So if you're 85 years old, you have a 40% chance of having Alzheimer's. Um, and so it would seem to me that, uh, that uh, we should declare war on Alzheimer's. Um, but uh, but th these kinds of things cannot be done. Um, I think um, one can speculate a lot on why. One, one sort of uh, philosophical cut I have on it is that uh, people no longer believe in the future as something you can calculate. They believe that the future is fundamentally statistical. And there's been a shift in thinking about the world uh, from in terms of calculus to statistics. And, uh, and maybe it's that our society is too financialized, so it's just sort of the random walk down Wall Street. Um, and nobody, um, nobody knows what technology will happen. Uh, we do not believe in profits. We believe that all profits are false profits. Anybody who says they know what the future looks like is automatically dismissed as a con artist of one sort or another. And so if you had someone like Einstein writing a letter to the White House, um, people would just, it would be treated as a joke. It would get lost in the mailroom. Um, and, um, and I think that's, uh, that's um, and so I think there is no definite view of what the future is. And if, if you had a, a conversation about what do we think the US will look like in 20 years, um, you know, people will give uh, indefinite bromides about it will be better. But any specifics, that's completely taboo. And that's very different from the way people talked about the future in the 50s or 60s. Mm -hmm. Science fiction as a literary genre has collapsed, which was, again, one of the sort of fictional ways in which people envisioned a better future. Yet here you are, and you're going to take us to Mars by what? 2030. 2030. Yeah. There you go. So he's going to do it, and you're going to reinvigorate Well, I, I, you know, Peter, Peter works or supports a guy who uh, thinks we can do it quicker, actually. If you, if you talk to Elon Musk, mm -hmm. um, you know, he and I disagree on some anything. things. I think we both agree that we'll get there. The way we're going to get there, we, we some kind of mm -hmm. disagree on, but I think we'll get there. So I'll ask you both, um, since we, we need to get out of this thinking uh, and out of, like, is there a role for government to help? Is, is, that, is that a place where, like Kennedy did, where the government can step back in and say, like, let's think higher, let's set goals? I think government is absolutely essential. Um, one of the speakers earlier today when, um, uh, boy, it's all clouding my mind here, but, but in one of the earlier sessions, we, we actually talked about, uh, you know, people want less government. They want government out of the way. Uh, I, I have to agree with whoever the speaker was at the time that said you get chaos. Uh, you know, we just can't operate without government. Government's job is to facilitate uh, the success of private enterprises. Um, you know, Elon and others wouldn't be doing, wouldn't be able to do what they're doing today were it not for government investment uh, in, in what they're trying to do with private space. Peter? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the, you know, I'm on the more libertarian side politically, so I'm, 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 a little, I'm somewhat more skeptical of government. Um, I, I would say that with respect to science and technology, there is an argument that, uh, that certainly some types of basic science research has the nature of a public good, and that it is the kind of thing that, uh, that uh, in theory at least, um, and there um, are many examples. In theory, at least, could be backed by the government. Um, the, uh, the, the. Um, the part that um, I'm skeptical of is I, I think our government um, is less able to do that than it, uh, than it was uh, 40 or 50 years ago. And, um, and we have to think really hard about um, you know, 
how it, how it can actually lead the way given the degree of technological and scientific illiteracy you have among people in government. You know, our government is dominated by lawyers, not by scientists and engineers. Um, of the 535 senators and congressmen, um, at a generous count, maybe 35 have some background in science or engineering. And you know, the rest of them do not know that solar panels don't work at night and windmills don't work when the wind is not blowing. And, um, and so I, I, I tend to think, um, I tend to think if you're going to have an engineering-centric government that's going to build major projects, uh, you have to have very different people in it. So you think there is, um, there'll be parallel governance systems that will emerge that sort of kind of operate alongside or in place of? Well, I, I, don't, think, I don't think there's any, uh, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think there are automatic solutions. You know, very often, uh, you know, when, you know, a lot of problems do not get solved and things, you know, simply fall apart. And so I, I, I do think that's, that's, that's a very real possibility. But I think, I think there, is, there is theoretically a role for government and for nonprofits. Um, um, practically, um, with, with uh, you know, some sig significant exceptions like my, my fellow speaker here, um, most people in government would not give a speech like the one that he just gave. It's, it's, that's, an, that's an unusual speech. And, uh, and, that's, uh, and I think that's, that, was, that was the thing I was, I was really struck by, listening to your speech, was how rare that sort of a speech is in our society. And why is it that it's so hard for our, um, you know, for people who are not just running a given program, but who are, are broader leaders, to give a speech like that? And, and you know, why is it so hard for them to do it in a way that's you know, convincing and doesn't sound like they're lost in space or something? If, if I could, and, and I, 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 I promise I won't, I won't dwell on this, but if I could say one thing, and I think Peter makes a great point, but I would, I would implore people to listen to the president now and then. Uh, he talks about the need for technology every single day. He talks about the critical need of education every single day. He is the person. I didn't make up going to Mars by 2030. That was a challenge that the president gave to NASA, uh, a challenge of putting humans you know, in the vicinity of an asteroid in 2025. Uh, he is frequently ridiculed by some you know, who, who question it for whatever reason. I, mm -hmm. I think you have a no, he's not a scientist, and, and he is a lawyer, but he's an incredibly. Just Peter. But he's an incredibly, <laughs> he, he is an incredibly intelligent, articulate person who does have a vision, mm -hmm. and it's the vision that, that we try to, you know, to carry out in NASA. I'm I'm privileged to lead 17,000 absolutely incredible civil servants, people who dedicate their lives to the service of this nation in the best way they can. Almost all of them are scientists and engineers. Uh, who just want me to leave them alone, give them some meager funds so they can go and do the technology development mm -hmm. about which Peter speaks. I, I agree with him. We have to become uh, less risk averse mm -hmm. and we have to be willing to lose now and then, to fail now and then. Uh, and we ha the, the biggest thing in my business is I have to try to convince my leaders, my, my middle managers, to turn young people loose, new, mm -hmm. and when I say young, I don't mean an age, but, but inexperienced people are loose to do high risk, low cost projects. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, they'll never learn, you know. We're gonna lose some people in the things that we do, and we're gonna lose some things in the people that we're gonna do. Commercial space is difficult, mm -hmm. but government space was very difficult. 
So, uh, you know, people have just got to have faith in American industry and the fact that I think they can achieve the, the goals that, that have been laid out by the president. You've both talked about the importance of science and technology and, and in some cases, the lack of appreciation for that. Underneath all of this is education. Talk, each of you talk a little bit yeah. about what you think of the current educational system and, and if by 2050 we're going to improve it, what, what would you like to see happen? I'm a product of public education. I believe in public education. I, I don't think that you can do anything other than improve, make your public education system as robust as possible, or then we are doomed. Uh, you can't have a nation like America be the nation that we are today uh, without viable, robust public education. And uh, so we have to find out what's wrong mm -hmm. and fix it. Uh, and it doesn't always require money. It sometimes requires uh, people making very difficult decisions about it and being able to tell people, okay, you either put up or get out. Uh, those are things we have to do. Mm -hmm. Peter? Well, I've, I've, I've spoken at you do this 20 under 20. Program. Yes, well, I've, I've spoken on this it. education topic at, um, in, in a great deal over the last uh, few years. And, uh, and I, I do think there are some things that have, you know, uh, I've sort of been interested in the question of what's stopping people from innovating more. And, and, um, and, uh, and one of the things I think has gone wrong uh, in a strange way is uh, these incredibly large debts people are burdened when they come out of college with, yeah, which, uh, which forces people to go into these, um, these sort of much lower risk, higher paying uh, careers that, uh, that uh, they, uh, they need to, uh, to get out of, out of debt with. Uh, uh, you know, total student debt um, sort of exceeded, uh, past the one trillion mark um, at the end of last year. Um, the cost of higher education has since 1980 gone up by about 300% uh, after inflation. It's gone up faster than anything else in our society, faster than health care, faster than energy costs, you know, faster than housing through the 05 bubble. And, um, and so even though uh, it does seem that we need people who have some, some of these sort of basic scientific and engineering skills to, to, to move forward, uh, we also have to realize that something's gone, gone very wrong and, uh, and uh, that there's, somehow these priorities have been have been um, have have been set in ways that, that need to be need to be uh, rethought uh, rethought pretty thoroughly. So I can I can speak a lot more on that. But I think the uh, um, it's it's quite possible that uh, we have something of an education bubble where people are they think of um, education as an abstraction as a credential. I was certainly guilty of this when I was an uh, undergraduate at Stanford in the 80s where, you know, what do you do after high school? You go to college. What do you do after college? You go to grad school. Um, and, um, and it's become in some ways a substitute for thinking concretely about the future, about, you know, what can I do to, to really make the world a better place? Um, and so even though there sort of are aspects of education that are very important and good, I think there also are uh, some, some ways in which it's, uh, it's become a strange distraction from us actually solving these problems. Now I have a contrary, Go sort of it. a sort of an odd view of what do you do. Peter said, you know, when we grew up, you, what do you do after high school? You go to college. I would say, if you really want to change things, you want to shake things up, what do you do after high school? You go serve for two years. Whether it's uh, Conservation Corps, uh, you know, anything, military, I don't care. You go do something where you have to work. And then you go to college, if that's for you. If it's not, you go to vocational school, or you go somewhere. But I can tell you, most people who have served, who have worked, uh, and then come back to college, 
understand the value of the dollar, <laughs> you know, that, that mm -hmm. they're going to pay for their college mm -hmm. education and they use it and they get much more out of it. So that would be my radical change. I wouldn't let a kid go to college out of high school. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's a good idea, except I wouldn't make it mandatory. I don't think there's a well, one I, size. I agree. I agree. I one, one size, size does not all, fit all. But, yeah. but I, th I think but more uh, encouragement might be, that might be a good thing. Yes. Uh, someone would like to follow up on your um, comments on the clean tech revolution. The question is, took Apple about 25 years to go from Lisa to the iPad. Why write off the clean tech revolution so in such a short amount of time and not continue to invest in the sector? Well, I think people, I think people should continue to invest. Uh, you know, Apple Computer was started, I believe, in 1977. Um, uh, it, went, it went public, uh, I believe, in 81 or 82. Uh, the investors had a phenomenal return on their investment in Apple Computer within three, four years. It was an incredibly successful company in the early 80s. It sort of lost its way after Jobs departed in 85. Uh, it was fired. Um, uh, was transitioned out. They had a separation, whatever you want to call it. Um, Not a good call. But, um, but, uh, but, uh, but I think the, uh, you know, and I, I, do think, um, I do think the clean tech uh, issue has gone on for eight, nine years. Um, investors are investing less than they were two, three years ago at this point, and it has not worked as well as as um, as, as people uh, thought it was going to work seven, eight years ago. And so, uh, precisely uh, because we need to develop alternatives, I think we need to have an honest accounting of of what went wrong, how people were thinking about it that was incorrect. Um, I, the, the the basic thing that I think was wrong about it was that people. Um, you know, in the computer area, you have to do more with less. You have to be able to do things more cheaply than the old economy alternatives. If Amazon had set out in, 90, uh, in 95, 96 to sell books on the internet and said it needed to get government subsidies, it cost twice as much as in a bookstore, but this was the way the future was going to be with books on the internet, um, they would have never developed the technology to, to make it better. And so I think the acid test for, for clean tech is, is it actually cheaper? Than, um, than, um, than um, conventional energy. And until it is cheaper, uh, I think, um, I think uh, it will not work. And you don't think it should be helped along for a certain number of years by government funding to get there? It's, it's um, or if, if, it, if it does get helped along, I'd want the government to have a, uh, to have a very uh, precise view of what it is funding. So there may be a role for government coordination. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of nuclear power. Um, and I think you can't have nuclear power without the government overriding local zoning rules, um, uh, setting aside a waste site in Nevada. And so there's, also, there's a need for government to push nuclear. Um, but you can only do that if you have a definite view of what, what should be done. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't have a definite view, uh, that, that is a problem. I think the, the whole Solyndra bankruptcy this last year was a very interesting debate because uh, it was, it was all the debate was all focused on process, and so the you know, there were the you know right. um, it was we had a process for allocating money to lots of different companies, and then the Republican critics were there were ethical violations, and it was all about process. And I would have much rather had a debate about substance, uh, what technology actually works, um, and you know substantively what works, rather than that we have some sort of portfolio financial portfolio allocation approach. And uh, so I think there's a role for government if people are uh, substantively thinking about the specific technologies. Mm -hmm. And my, my guess is it'll be one or two that really work. And we should, uh, you know, if the government's going to make a coordinated effort for those one or two, that's good. 
if it's a hundred different ones, I think you'll get a hundred bad investments and they will all fail. So the government should not be in the venture capital business? Well, it, it, it sh if, it, if it is in the venture capital business, it should be like a venture capitalist mm -hmm. where you have a definite view, this is a technology that's mm -hmm. definitely going to work. So there's a question about venture capital. Where does it have a competitive edge? What, what are the sectors and where is venture capital lacking or where should it be applied to get your axis moving again? Um, well, it's, it's um, you know, I, I think there are, there are all these, uh, there are all these questions about what can be done by, you know, I'm not, I don't think the problem simply gets solved by venture capitalists, obviously entrepreneurs. I think there is a potentially role for government and nonprofits and big companies. So there's a role for many different kinds of people. The, um, the bias I have is that uh, people can't think very far ahead. And so anything that takes more than two years mm -hmm. doesn't get funded. Um, and, uh, and so my bias is to try to look at projects that take a little bit more than two years. I think that makes a lot of sense. So looking uh, a couple of other things um, about entrepreneurship, which will hopefully help us keep innovating. In the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years, do, do you see it changing? Do you have a picture of how entrepreneurship will change? And, what the new crop of entrepreneurs will look like? Because the old crop, like the, the current new crop is very different from some of the folks in the 60s and 70s. Um, I, I don't, I, I never like the word entrepreneurialism or entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, one of my, uh, one of the people you who worked, uh, well, but it's, but you know, one of, one of, the, one of the people who worked, worked for me, uh, you know, I was asking him, so, you know, what do you want to do in five, 10 years? And, and the answer was, well, it's really clear. I want to become an entrepreneur. And it's sort of, uh, saying that, it's sort of like um, a writer saying, I want to become famous, or you know, a businessman saying, I want to become rich. Um, and, um, and I think, uh, I think it's, it's the, the way I prefer to think about it is that there are very important problems to be solved, that there are people who are passionate about solving problems. Uh, some of these problems can be solved in nonprofits, government, big business. But uh, there are reasons to think that starting new companies is a way to, to solve a number of these problems, and, um, and, uh, and, I, and, and people become entrepreneurs in order to solve problems. They don't become entrepreneurs for its own sake. And for the things we're doing, we need, we need the typical classic entrepreneur. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, we, there are, there are near-Earth objects. There are asteroids and things that, that will threaten Earth. Uh, you know, we don't know uh, all of them. Uh, government cannot afford to do it alone. You know, we don't, we don't have people who are forward-looking enough who will fund government doing it. So what we're doing now is we're partnering with, I don't know what they want to be called, but I call them entrepreneurs, people who have the money to independently go out and partner with us. They help, we provide our engineering skill, our know-how, uh, they provide, provide most of the money, and we're trying to develop uh, spacecraft that can help us identify uh, near-Earth objects that one day may threaten Earth, trying to characterize what they are. Uh, it's very important. The nation should have been doing that a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But if we can't, then we need people, we need entrepreneurs, people who are interested in commercial spaceflight. Uh, if, if we had to depend on people who d only invested if they thought it for sure it was going to work, we wouldn't have a commercial. A we, I would not be involved in commercial in trying to facilitate the success of commercial entities now. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to switch gears. Uh, there's a, a student, Ryan Lim, if you're here, you can stand up. Um, he's a student ambassador for the World Affairs Council. And his question is, as outrageous as it sounds, um, many people have been talking about using outer space as a dumping ground for us to put our trash. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I, I have thought about that, but um, with satellites, for example, mm -hmm. uh, when we have satellites that have spent their life there are two things you can do. You can bring them down in a controlled manner and, and have them burn up during reentry. Uh, satellites built up to a certain time, and I, I forget whether it's 2008 or 2009 or whatever, there was no requirement to do that. And mm -hmm. so they come in uncontrolled, as, as you've heard twice uh, this year already. Uh, satellites that have been built subsequently are, have to have enough propellant that we can either do a controlled deorbit to a relatively small area, mm -hmm where they will burn up during reentry, Or, as an alternative, you can take them to a higher orbit where they'll stay for hundreds of years. So that is sort of like a, a satellite dumping ground, burial ground, if you will. But I don't, I don't know that, that that's a place I want to send trash and <laughs> nuclear material and the like. But I don't take, I don't put anything out of question, to be quite honest. We, right. we haven't thought about it, and I'm not sure that he doesn't have a good idea. Yeah, he might be an entrepreneur, um, he, not calling yeah. himself an entrepreneur, yeah. doing that. Uh, there is this notion, some people complain that technology, or particularly the computer sector, has not produced enough jobs. You know, you have companies that are incredibly successful that end up employing 2,500 people, whatnot. What's your take on technology and jobs, and should we think about that or do just ignore it? We'll make that our last question, I guess. Well, I think that when technology works, um, it enables people to, um, small numbers of people to do more than people were doing before. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the, um, the way it theoretically should work in the economy is that uh, it increases the prosperity of the economy and it frees people up to do other things. Um, as long as they're educated. To as do long that. as they're educated, as long as you know, there are other structural things are, are fine. Um, I, I tend to think that uh, it's a mistake, though, to blame the sort of um, anemic, a jobless recovery and things like that on, on technology. Because I think we've just, you know, in, the, in, in the past, we had technological innovation and you know, people who worked in the horse buggy factory lost their jobs and they went to work in the car factory. Uh, I think the, the issue in my mind is really much more that there isn't as much happening on the technology side um, as, as is advertised. And if we had rapid technological progress, I think you would have a lot of jobs. If you could get the clean tech piece to work, uh, that probably would create millions of jobs if, it, if you got it to work in an economically viable way. I think there are ways in which the uh, computer revolution has created a lot of ancillary mm -hmm. uh, jobs of, of one sort or another. You know, I think Silicon Valley, San Francisco, you know, are actually doing reasonably well economically, even though most people don't work directly in those in those in those sectors. It's just it's just not been enough to help the whole state of California, much less uh, the whole developed world. Mm -hmm. One of the paradoxes of our of our nation is that there are many jobs available. We don't have kids who are uh, academically. Uh, trained and ready to take those jobs. I come from South Carolina. Uh, many years ago, uh, automobile industries, heavy industry came to South Carolina because for obvious reasons, no unions, they thought they could come down and build cars. No one who could, uh, you know, who had the mathematics or science background to be able to, to run a production line. 
but the state of South Carolina said, okay, we're not going to make that mistake again. They, they put together a, a series of uh, technical schools around the state, and now they are able to do that. And now there are automobile manufacturing companies who have come in place, and, you know, in place there. Lots of robotics, so not this massive number of people, but still a lot of jobs. But they, they're high-tech jobs, and they're jobs that require an education. And again, that's why you know, my focus, our focus at NASA, is K through 12, because if you don't, if we don't give our kids the basic background, the basic fundamentals that allows them to go to a Stanford or the Naval Academy, as I did, or, or somewhere else. Or drop out successfully. Uh, you know, or drop out successfully, then, then we're just not going to be able to go anywhere. But K through 12 education is critical, and mm -hmm. I think it's done in the public schools, but we make them as good as we can. And I think we should teach them computer languages. We talked about that. On that note, we are out of time. Let me thank uh, both Charlie and Peter for their awesome remarks and brilliance. <laughs>